Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrant, and this is episode 15. What a week in Australian rugby. Uh, Probably not unusual, let's face it. Uh, controversy does seem to rear its ugly head every every few months, and uh, 2021 was going pretty well. New deal with Stan. Uh, the teams are all seem to be preparing themselves well for a bit of uh, Australian matches with a with a possible Trans Tasman competition at the end of it. But obviously, the Tars had been struggling from round one. We all saw it. We all knew it. Uh, the board knew it. The fans knew it. Certainly, Rob Penny knew it. The players knew it, and we all assumed that it was one of those things that we'd just get through this year and that maybe there'd be brighter times ahead because Rob Penny and his team were building towards the future. Not to be. There's been some really good coverage of this, actually. Stan just did a, a specific interview with Nick McArdle uh, grilling Paul Dawn from New South Wales Rugby Union. You know, no one's really hiding from the facts, but obviously... The, the debate over whether this sacking was the right thing to do or not will continue. They're, we're going to touch on that today because my guest today is a New South Wales Waratahs supporter, but he's also a, a very good friend of mine who has a very intimate knowledge of both rugby union and rugby league, and I thought he'd be the right person to have for this episode whereby I examine rugby union and rugby league. It's a bit of a battle of the codes, but not in the way that you're going to think. We're sort of examining how rugby union and rugby league differ, how they come together, where they overlap, based a bit on both of our experiences, and presumably anyone listening will will have a a pretty good knowledge of both codes. So hopefully this is something that will resonate with you. Uh, Ben is, for people in New South Wales, they will probably recognise his voice because he is the ground announcer for all Waratahs matches and all Wallaby matches in in Sydney. So he is that sort of voice of God that you hear echoing around the stadium. And in fact, we talk about that and his, uh, some of his experiences, including his personal experience of being at the Games last year. Uh, he's an interesting cat, funny guy. He's an actor, raconteur. He also has his own podcast, which is called Woody and Slugs Do League, which, as you can imagine, is about rugby league. Uh, they focus a lot on punting, which has obviously become a real fascination for people that follow all sports these days. I certainly have a few mates who almost follow sports they'd never even watch just purely because they want to punt on it. Whether that's a good thing or not, not for me to say. But anyway, this is Woody and this is me talking about rugby league and union. Thanks for coming on. Um, I've sort of given you an introduction as one of my more learned rugby friends, and I and I do mean that because yeah, I think when I started the, the process of um, making the documentary, and I was obviously thinking of people who I could talk to who were inside the tents and all that. You know, I also thought about a few of my friends who are usually the people who I kind of I, I listen to when it comes to um, you know, what's going on in the game and certainly uh, what's going on with the the tipping and the odds as, as and, you know, you and Slugs have a podcast devoted to that very subject, which um, 
I know is uh, is very enjoyed by all. And obviously, with two weeks now into NRL, you guys must be um, mate, knee deep into uh, everything rugby league and punting. Look, it's a funny thing. Like, I don't think you can separate rugby league and punting these days. I'm a father of three, and it's a conundrum. Like, it genuinely is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're sitting there with your five-year-old watching footy, and he's like, oh, what does $2.80 mean? And you're like, oh, it just means that the team that the Roosters are playing are probably not going to win. And he's like, well, I know that because the Roosters are the best. And I'm like, well, I know. <laughs> like, there's a whole other aspect to it where, like, there's a lot of statistics. He's like, what are statistics? And it just starts this whole conundrum. So what you're saying is rugby league is actually encouraging um, early parenting techniques. Oh, rugby oh, look, trust me, you learn you learn a lot about yourself from rugby league. Rugby league's like the great wake up call these days. It's like, why are they doing that? Why are those people, why don't those people have teeth in the crowd? There's a lot <laughs> that goes on as a parent when you're watching a game of rugby league uh, with your child. But mm. um, but their capacity to absorb that sporting contest in its simplicity is remarkable compared to when I try to sit down and it's difficult to get them to watch a game. The Waratahs obviously because I'm working through all of them, but mm. it's difficult to, uh, yeah, it's difficult to get them to sit down and watch uh, another game of footy um, or, or of rugby union. So if I give a bit of background, when I moved to Sydney um, after a couple of years, I, I moved into probably one of the best shared houses uh, of all time, which was uh, very very cheap rent with with sea views in the eastern suburbs of Sydney with um, four other blokes. Uh, what do we have? Two Foxtel subscriptions. We had basically TVs in every room, a beer fridge. Um, it, it was a, it was it was basically the closest I think I'll ever come to being in a frat house. There was a couple of weeks we had a beer fridge in a lounge room. Do you remember that when DK first <laughs> moved in? We didn't know where to put the second fridge. Yeah, I do. But um, you know, Woody was the the man who made it happen. It was a it was a, a family home, and um, he sort of welcomed in um, rugby mates to basically move in and, and help pay the rent. And and what struck me when I was moved into that house, and having grown up in WA. You know, rugby league was sort of this thing you kind of hear about usually once a year when Origin's on. It was all about AFL. But what struck me when I moved to Sydney and started playing union and going to the clubs and is that there was this strong knowledge and, in fact, very deep interest in rugby league and rugby union. So you'd have guys that play for a rugby union club on the weekend, but they'd all be talking about the league match, you know, the, sort of the, the Rabbitohs and the Roosters match the night before or, you know who's playing the Warriors or something like that. And so I was always interested in the fact that you and certainly the guys in the house and your mates were all rugby union guys, but you were spending so much time talking and absorbed in the rugby league scene. And that's always interested me. Yeah, look, it was funny. Like, um, because we, we all grew up, well, a lot of us grew up playing league. Like, kind of league is the sport, especially in Sydney. You grow up playing until you're you go to a high school, which then dictates whatever sport you're going to play mm. um, on the weekend. Well, some some sports, some high schools not on the weekend, but in my particular case, I ended up at Sydney Boys High. It was a GPS school. This is in the mid-90s. You know, we were producing Wallabies hand over fist mm. uh, at that point. You know, it wasn't the kind of the Sydney High that we're dealing with today. And so, uh, you know, my year seven, our... I think uh, I said this when we had a chat on camera. My my headmaster 
in year seven when I got to Sydney Boys High School was Bob Outerside, who was a wallaby prop. Right. You know what I mean? And so, you know, we respected our GPS sporting status. And I had grown up playing rugby league for the Cloverly Crocodiles, like the great Victor Radley, currently of the Roosters, and, mm. and many, many, you know, like a whole host. And, you know, and I'd gone through all the, you know, I was built like a brick shit house when I was a kid. And, you know, I could run and I could ball play and I had silky skills but as you would attest to uh having played rugby with me when it came to you know like defense it was yeah you know whatever yeah like right you know he's yours he's yours yeah i've got i've got support like i would always the the, the spirit was willing yeah the spirit was willing uh oh look i you know i probably should have been a much better tackler than i was and i so i'll jump back a step because coming through in the late 80s early 90s as a 10 or 11-year-old in the eastern suburbs playing rugby league, there was a glut or a plethora of really good footballers. Mm. You know, and our our primary school team at Chloe Public, we were really good. And we went to the state knockout finals of the kind of, you know, whatever it was, and we lost to uh, St. Joseph's at Oyster Bay, which were full of future Dragons and Cronulla Sharks players and, you know, like a lot of my mates matriculated up and got into the roosters and the bunny systems and stuff like that. And I ended up Sydney Boys, a rugby school, kind of at that point, a prop in league and a prop in union are very different things. Mm. So I was, oh, you know, I start learning scrummaging technique and lineouts and tactics and, you know, like, like ruck and mall technique and all that kind of stuff. And I was used to basically running bolt upright into the line getting my hands free and, and looking to pop. And then all of a sudden body height was a concern and all those kind of things and kind of had to readjust the game. But my point of view, my father was the club president down at a rugby club in the Eastern suburbs. And so that was kind of where I always ended, thought I'd end up anyway. Yeah. So when I went through the, the rugby union system, you learn, um, you learn the game and the beauty of the game. It's a much more beautiful game than rugby league is, because mm. tactical it's chess and it's it's all of that kind of stuff. And so, what ended up happening is you kind of get this divergence of the blokes you grew up with. Some go to league, some go to union. And back in the early nineties and mid nineties and stuff, union was kind of the place that you almost wanted to be a little bit more. League was in a conundrum super league was there you know what i mean what was going to happen sure there was money getting thrown around and we were building towards something in union and so by the early 2000s when you know it was was already professional and we had the world cup and stuff like that there was this pride in being a rugby union player it's 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 really funny to try and articulate because having been a leaguey all my life and then being a union player i enjoyed playing union more but I still loved watching rugby league more Yeah, on the telly. But I like going to rugby union games more. And it's this weird, like, it was hard to have them exist together. So by the time you rocked up into our lives mm. in that kind of time, we were playing footy together. We were living a kind of rugby union existence. But rugby union was far more indoctrinated with those clubs at the time. You know, we had access to tickets to games. We could go to the, you know, like, you know, and, you know, we were selling 100,000 tickets to go and watch the Wallabies and the All Backs play out at, yeah. at, at, um, out at 
ANZ and, and stuff like that. And, and it was kind of part of our Saturday ritual that we would play footy, go to the pub, watch whatever, you know, provincial game was on, Tars, Brumbies, whoever, Crusaders, if we got there at 5.30, you know what I mean? We'd watch it. We knew everybody. But then come Sunday Arvo, that was well, back on league time because it was on Channel 9. Yeah. Like, and so I think the thing is, as union fans, we never disavowed ourselves of rugby league. We never got rid of it because mm. we had league on Friday. We had league on Sunday and we had league on Monday. I guess you've tapped on something that I've wanted to like, you know, dig into a bit deeper when I've looked at league is that, you know, league for many years was probably this sport that obviously was with professional first and then it really did tap into the tribalism and the communities in New South Wales and Queensland. But then there seemed, there did seem, and maybe it was when league was sort of still trying to find itself and its identity in the nineties, that they did seem that the two codes almost sort of, I wouldn't say there was a, it was a it was a it was a competition, but it was identifiable that they were both different, and that you watch them for for different reasons. And they could you could sort of you know whereas now it, it does feel sometimes where people have just been, and it's also the AFL effect I think in Sydney at least where I felt that it was almost like oh you got to either you're either watching AFL or you're watching rugby or you're you're either a leaguey or you're a union uh, head, and I've never I've just never felt that way because I grew up following the West Coast Eagles I still do. I loved it when the Western Reds came to Perth in the nineties. You know, I don't really remember how well they did. I think I was, I was at the first game at the Wacker and I think it was against St. George, but you know, they had Mark Guy, Matty Fuller, oh, yeah. I remember yeah. you know, the crazy buzz cut. And um, I think Julian O'Neill who managed to get himself kicked out of just about every pub in Perth um, back then. And um but 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 that that was like exciting because for people in WA that was the closest thing we could have to a rugby union team. So I think a lot of union people got behind the, the Western Reds before they left. Um, but it was always this thing of you know I've never really understood this these battle lines. Yeah, I don't. I'm the same. I don't understand why they need to be mutually exclusive. Mm. I've I, I've kind of never understood that. I think, however, working in both fields. I'm acutely aware now of how there is a massive division. Like there is a literal mm. separation in in the fans. We were, I mean, obviously the Waratahs are in a state of flux at the moment, but um, in the last game that was played, we we showed some images on the big screen of, because um, uh, it was Tars versus Reds, of when Wendell Sailor defected mm. from the Reds to the Tars yes. and went back to Suncorp to play. His first yeah. game back, 2005. And he's given it to the Reds fans. They're giving it to him. Oh, my. Like, it it was like an English soccer game. Yeah. Like, it was carnage. Do you know what I mean? And this is a guy that defected from rugby league to union. Yeah. And the thought that I had in my head was like, that crowd that are watching that game at Suncorp, they are not just the 40,000 union fans. They are... They were both union and league fans. Like that's how it felt. It felt yeah. that he carried like there was enough. And they, I'm not saying they went to see him, but what I'm saying is that the demarcation between a league and a union fan, it wasn't a thing in 2005. You could be both. Mm. Mm. And for some reason today, it genuinely feels like at some point fans have been made to choose. Yeah. And I don't know who's done that. I don't know where that's come from. I don't know if that's the way that 
the things have been marketed or packaged. I don't know if that's a participation thing. I don't know if that's a socioeconomic thing. I have no idea why. But mm. in my head, the only reason I can think that it's happened is because the sporting product on the field that's been provided by one of the sports isn't as exciting as the other one. And people have walked from one to the other. Whereas I reckon in 2005, the day that Wendell ran out on Suncorp for the Waratahs, having played league for so long, mm. do you know what I mean? And got basically a villain's reception. It was like a WWE match. Like mm. I know it's 15 or 16 years or whatever, but we've come to a point where you can barely get 5,000 people to a Reds Waratahs match in Sydney, which is, to me, that is not even a red flag. That is a dire situation. Yeah. And, like, I, I, well, I was watching Vunavalo the other day, like an elite rugby league winger playing mm. for the Reds. Uh, and in some ways, I thought to myself, how many people actually know who he is? Like, how good mm. he was in league? And then in my... Another part of me was like, has he realised that he's made a bad decision? And is this just, and you said this before, is this just a trampoline to get to Japan to earn, mm. you know, 1.2 a year? Yeah. And if that's what, and if that's what, if that's what our domestic competition is being used as, then that's trouble. Yeah, it is. And look, just to give more context, so you've obviously mentioned about being at the game. So your your role currently is you actually do the match match day announcing at um, the rugby union matches. So for anyone listening who's from Sydney, they would recognise the dulcet tones of Woody. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, please be upstanding for national. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, so you were you at you the, the game last year with the um the national anthem sung in the the aura language? That was arguably the most. Nervous, yeah, and I mean, I'm a professional actor, I've been on stage in front of mm. thousands of people before, you know, I've done Shakespeare, I've done whatever. But, um, that moment, knowing that was coming and knowing the importance of it and the um cultural significance of it, I've done a lot of voiceovers in my time, I've done a lot of announcing, we're all prone to a slip of the tongue, mm. but there was something about watching her uh, in rehearsal sing it in language that was so overwhelmingly powerful and she was she's an astounding young woman a fantastic singer and it's a beautiful beautiful song when it's sung in language and i i understand that's only one of the languages you know Mm. that was the the eora language that they sung on that day but in the back of my head i was like I can't be the guy that fucks this up. (laughs) This is going to be on ESPN. This is going to be on the BBC. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The intro to this is a moment in time. And I I don't want to get it wrong so that... Well, you don't want to overshadow and you don't want that to overshadow. Exactly. It mitigates it, you know, like hilarious announcer fail as, you know, Olivia sings anthem. Like, it's just you don't want that. Yeah, but the other thing that well, that we didn't know because when we watched it in rehearsal, um, I didn't know that all the boys had learnt the lang- the, the song in language. Right. Yeah. No, that's and so she like. starts singing, and then Brennan. I just remember Brennan paying her a face as the as the camera like panned down, 
he was belting it out. Yeah. And I became quite emotional and I'm looking down and I've still got my button on. So I'm still live to the bowl. Like, right, right. <laughs> I'm so nervous that I'd said all this stuff, you know, you know, a proud Wiradjuri woman and like I'd done it all. Mm. And then when I finished, I was so relieved. I took this inhale of breath, but I hadn't actually stopped myself from talking. <laughs> so there'd been a nice loud breath of God around the stadium, <laughs> which was just Woody breathing into the mic. But I hadn't taken it off, and he started singing, and and uh, and 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 the person I work with is a very dear mate of mine, and uh, like you know very well, yeah. and uh, and for whatever reason, there was just this moment I saw on the big screen. I saw Brandon singing it with all his heart, and 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 her in front belting out this this anthem and uh and i just had another look and i realized that that i was still live so i took my finger off the button so it wasn't there <laughs> but honestly my next words were gonna be holy shit like, yeah, you know yeah. what i mean like yeah. like can you imagine that she's yeah, yeah. seeing the boys are firing off and then from the top you hear holy shit <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> but it was it was it was something that I will never forget. And it's something that we should do mm. far more often. And it was also, um, that, that girl was 16. That girl was in year 12. Do you know what I mean? Like, what a stage. Like, what a performance. Yeah. I mean, it's no, look, it's no, it's not the Nikki Webster Sydney Olympics crowd, but it's in terms of the, for an Australian context, I think it's definitely, people will still talk about it for years, certainly in rugby circles, but I think in other sports, people kind of, and that's the thing that always bugs me about rugby union is it's got this potential to capture the nation's attention. And I know everyone wants the winning, the Wallabies to be winning, but it does still have that, you know, AFL can capture everyone's attention. Usually like in the non-AFL heartland states on grand final day, um, origin does it usually during origin or grand final day. Rugby union, the, the day that captures everyone's attention, if you can get everyone's attention, would be probably a Bledisloe Cup match. Um, yeah, but who was the captain of the Wallabies in that game? Do you remember? It, what, not Hooper? Yeah, it was. And does he yeah. play in our domestic competition now? No. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, I've, I've noticed um, with, you know, this. it was funny. Someone made a point when Stan had announced that they were coming on board and they, apparently there was all this great sort of press and, um, you know, they, they had sort of, advertisements up around Sydney and billboards on and bus bus stations. And it's like majority of them were photos of Michael Hooper, um, the current Wallaby captain and Waratah's captain who would not be playing this year in the local comp. So yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a shame, but look, I mean, you mentioned the Tars before and you're right. It is, well, some would say just business as usual in Tarland, but I think, you know, you go back seven years and we were both at that game, not together, but, Separately, we were both at Stadium Australia when the Tars beat the Crusaders. And um, you know, it seems Amazing. like a it seems like a different age, a real different age. Uh, seems like a different game. sport, mate. It seems like a different industry. Mm. To 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 be honest, and I know that COVID hurt. Like I know that COVID hurt. Like I I kind of from the um the perspective of a a, a fan, but be also kind of uh, um a worker in the industry of rugby. Mm, yep. I know how much it hurt, but it just seems like, see that vision of Wendell in 2005, you see Foley kicking the goal in 2014, mm. like five years, nine years, 
seven years later, it doesn't feel like it's a natural statistical drop. It feels like it's a global financial crisis level drop. Yeah. Does that yeah. make does that make sense in what I'm trying no, it, to articulate? It, it, it yeah. does because what what I've tried to do is you know. With this, certainly with the documentary and what I'm doing with this podcast is I want, I'm trying to look at the more bit of picture and see because it's hard it, it's hard to make sense from one season or two seasons. Um, like with Penny, he's been judged on the last 18 months. That's just not fair. If you're really being honest, you have to go back and go, well, let's look at the last five years, maybe even go back further in 10 years. And, and so what I've found is that actually if you look at Australian rugby over the last 40 years, you can really start to trace pivotal decisions and moments some that haven't been um, within anyone's control, you know, things like the rise of, um, you know, rugby in Europe and, and the, you know, the increasing uh, salaries that are happening in Japan and now major league rugby. But there's, there's, you go back and you actually try to piece it all together and you realize actually it's a much more complicated um, situation. So like Rob Penny has been judged because, you know, he couldn't get a team to improve over the first five games this year. That just to me is is ridiculous. It's it's like saying the guy, you, you fire the captain of the Titanic because he's steered more to the left than the right, but you're still going to hit the iceberg and it still doesn't get away from the fact that the ship hasn't been built correctly or, you know, you know the problems that the foundations are still there. And, and I don't know whether the board are looking at that and this is just something they had to do. They had someone had to be a four guy or whether they genuinely believe that a new coach is going to be the, the magic bullet. Well, they can't catch. Well, the players can't catch a football. That's a mm. thing. Mm. Like that's a, that to me seems to be a, I remember I was talking to dad uh, on the weekend we were just discussing all things rugby because he's, you know, he's like a 70 year old dude and, he uh, he's bought Stan so he can go and watch everything. Mm. You know, he'll watch every game of rugby played. You know, and uh, and he was talking to me about years and years and years ago down at our rugby club mm. when we got an ex Wallaby to come in and start to help out with some coaching. And the first training session, uh, and it was a guy I'll name him. It was a guy called Bruce Maloof, mm. and Bruce Maloof uh, came down. And uh, and he said, oh, before you, you know, don't show me your backline moves. Like, don't show me your training drills. I just want to see how many of the people in your rugby club can catch and pass a footy. I don't care what position they play. Yeah. So just line up in lines of five and just run a just just a five man passing drill. Yeah. And if you're not pass, if you're not in offense, you're in in defense, and we'll just run an opposed passing drill and see how many people can can pass or draw a man. Mm. And at the end of it, he's like, you guys have no chance of winning football games if you can't catch and pass. Yeah. And that's kind of like, it's it's kind of like how it feels at the moment. There are skill players in the game at other clubs and a lot in New Zealand mm. that the ball appears to be an extension of their hand. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's a natural thing for them to do, and I don't, I don't know that it's Rob Penny's fault that he has seemed to have gotten guys that don't have some of those really basic skills. But, but you can teach people tactics, you can teach people like concepts, you can teach people, you know, like playing space or 
you know, quarter the field or two one way, three the other. Like you can do all of that stuff. But if the ball's not getting past the first set of hands, the ball's not going anywhere. And you're not going anywhere. And I don't know where that has started, especially I think we're getting a bit New South Wales centric mm. at the moment. Well, it's funny. I mean, we are, but you know what? New South Wales and Queensland, uh, that is, they are, they have traditionally been the heart and soul of of the, the main body of, of rugby in this country. And I think what we're seeing in New South Wales, I personally believe is indicative of what's happened to rugby in general in that, you know, we know we've been under the pressure, we know we've been under the pump, but when one of your two major provinces is failing the way it is, that's actually not just a New South Wales problem, that's a that's a rugby problem in Australia because we've actually, all, all that's happened, it's sort of like a cancer. The cancer has just now moved and located itself in New South Wales and, um, you know, Queensland are doing well. Queensland are a really good footy team, man. Brad Thorne's a great coach. You know what I mean? One thing I would, and look, this this episode's about league and union. So like Thorne is a great example of a guy who, I guess you know, tried a bit of everything, and um, presumably he's bringing it out. You know, I know he's got some. My my personal belief is is Thorne is basically trying to make Queensland the Canterbury of Australia, which is great because I think he came through that system. He played there. He understands what makes a club successful, and I think there's a whole number of things. But it's interesting that, you know, he's he's probably also using that IP that he's gotten from both codes to to the to maximize the, the Reds capacity. It's funny, you know, like I I, I do wonder if someone did like a, a, a case study on union versus league in each state, uh, in terms of how well the teams in each state are going. Because at the moment the Queensland Reds, they're the creme de la creme of Australian rugby, whereas the rugby league teams in Queensland are dog shit. Really? The Broncos are in, like an absolute, like they are a mess. The Queensland Cowboys are massively, massively like failing. They've got, you know, they've, like they've lost um, first and then since then they've, they've mm. been doing nothing. The Titans are going okay. They're trying their hardest uh, and, you know, they're a chance to make the top eight. But last year, no Queensland team made the top eight in the rugby league. Yeah? yeah, and the Reds are going well. Whereas the Waratahs are flailing, genuinely flailing. And in New South Wales rugby league has never been stronger. Simply from a business standpoint or a product standpoint, how do you compete? Like, what do you do? If you're not the best show in town, what do you do? Yeah, no, it, it, it's tough. You know, you, it, there's just there's, Australia doesn't allow, you know, it's the, one of the most competitive sporting uh, environments in, in our region, if not, no, if not the world, certainly, you know, you've got uh, AFL is, is the big behemoth that it is. And of course, soccer is, yeah, soccer has gone through, I guess it's own sort of um, trials and tribulations, but if they did sort themselves out, then they would be a much bigger threat for, for at the professional level. Um, what, what's, what you just reminded me is when, when I interviewed um, Rod McQueen um, for the doco and um, I've played this in a previous episode, but he talked about when professionalism started, one of the big advantages for Australia was that we had AFL and, and league. So when overnight these amateur guys were getting paid to be professional and had to act professional, one of the first, one of the things that they were doing was they were going to league 
and looking at, well, what's the program? What do you put these guys, how do you get the fitness up? Like, how do you keep these guys busy every day? And, um, you know, I think obviously the first couple of years for Wallabies weren't so great, but it's certainly, I think professionalism took off here, perhaps more than other countries, because we had codes that we, and templates that we could follow on. And I think there was this acceptance that the union players were not as fit as the league is, and they needed to address that. And, and, and so, you know, it just strikes me that, you know, we probably still could be, you know, borrowing from the other sports and, and learning from them and not sort of, and I think that it happens in Ireland to some degree. You see Irish clubs and, and, and uh, you know, they've got Gaelic football, which has an incredible skill set associated with it. And, um, you know, I don't know whether that still happens and whether that's sort of just a, something that people in the union world feel that they, they're too proud to perhaps consider it, but. But you look at, but you're right. You look at the players that come through from league, um, and you know Corabidi is is the best example. And they just seem, uh, fitness wise and athletic wise, they just almost seem like they're on another level sometimes. Can I ask you a question? Mm, please. That's what this is all about. So okay, so uh, we're playing against each other. You run at me. I tackle you. Good, like textbook. You know, legs tackle around the thighs, mm. and let's not get into whether or not I'd actually be able to affect that tackle or whether or not you would step or palm. Let's not get into semantics here, but let's just hypothetically say you're a back rower. You, you know, take go one off the off the uh, off the rack. You kind of yeah. uh, you come at me. I'm you know like two defenders wide. You run up my left shoulder. I hit you. You go to ground, and it's a simple tackle. I take you. Your momentum puts you over me. I go to ground, right? So we're kind of not vertical to the goalposts, but we're probably at a 45. It's one of those things. Yeah. What are the rules? Can I stand up and simply take the ball or do I have to go around past your hands? Where is the gate? What is the, where is the ruck? No one else is with us yet. I'm the tackler, but we've both gone to ground. There's a flanker. I used to obviously try and tackle pilfer, pilfer, and it was all about the, the minute you the minute you the minute the minute you tackle someone, you get back on your feet and you try and then get involved. Let's re- let's reverse the situation because that's more likely. I'm a prop. Yeah, I've I've <laughs> I've been I've been seagulling. I've taken a hit up wide. You know, I think I'm in a space. You've come across. You've tackled me right around the thighs. Mm. I've gone over your shoulder. So we're kind of like we're almost. Um, parallel to the sideline, but we're not quiet. Yeah. But but the ball and my body is half a body length past you. Mm. If you stood up and turned around and pilfered, yeah. Would you be offside? I believe the tackler, if they get back on their feet, has a right to, unless the ruck has been formed in the time that I've gotten up. I believe. But it's funny you mention this because, like, I I have watched rugby in the last few years and. You know, even I sort of watch it and go, what just happened there? I don't actually understand the referee's call. Certainly when it comes to the dark arts of propping and scrums failures, I think most people are at a loss as to actually what the cause of. Um, and, and this is an issue at the moment with... And isn't that part of it? it? It is. It is because totally, I mean, my, you know, use my family, my wife, these people who are the best example, they're, they're people that aren't rugby people. They'll watch the game and if there's lots of, you know, collapse scrums or there's just a lot of talking or, you know, just stoppages in play. 
it's a lot harder for them to probably pick up than if it was a game of AFL where the ball is just constantly in motion. And it's kind of clear that the ball's just got to get through the, the, the post at the other end. And, you know, the, the offenses and penalties don't seem to be as, as murky. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I spoke with Barry Honan, another person in a previous episode, former Wallaby, who has spent a lot of time analysing uh, the game and going, he, part, he did basically did a study, which he's now presenting to Rugby Australia, part of this committee that he's on. And um, one of the findings was that the ball in, a, in an average rugby union game was in motion for about 30 to 35 minutes in an 80 minute game. Whereas in, in NRL, it was above 50 minutes. Yeah. And it's even faster. It's even more now because of, probably faster because they can change the rules nrl can change whatever rules they want and 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 introduce it whereas unions got to go through rug, world rugby and the bureaucracy and that's kind of what i was trying to hint at there it was like well i'm going to sit down with my five-year-old who wants to understand everything about every sport that's on television because i watch a lot of sport he wants to understand basketball he wants to understand gridiron he wants to understand like well i don't watch afl or soccer he plays soccer so Mm. He kind of, we've been, you know, coaching him. But him watching a rugby league game, the questions are very, like, why did that happen? I was like, oh, because, you know, you got to be there. He's like, cool. Trying to watch rugby union with him? Yeah. And this is somebody that I want to play rugby union. Yeah. Trying to tell a five-year-old what the hell is going on in this game of sport is very, very difficult. And... And I think I said this when we had a chat. It feels like it's been adjudicated to within an inch of its life. Mm. And the rules around certain elements and certain aspects are so, they're almost esoteric. They're almost conceptual. Like it's like, like I used to, when I coached, I used to just say to the guys, live in the gray area, like break the rules until the ref yeah. tells you where the rule, where the line is. It's the Richie McCaw thing, right? <laughs> He just he just cheated until somebody said stop cheating. He's like, I didn't even know I was cheating. That's kind of it. Yeah. Like you kind of don't know if you're cheating or not. Like pack a scrum, like in the front row. Can I go long bind? Can I drag his hips down? Can I pop my shoulder? Can I dig in under his chest bone? And you're like, well, sometimes you can. Well, what if I want to screw the scrum? Can I can we go back through the loose head or do we have to go back through the tight head? What if we crab walk? And everyone's like, well, no, there are like a ref that's maybe never packed a scrum goes, I think you did that. And you're like, well, I also have 1,600 kilos of force from either side of me at this point. I've got to make a split second decision. So yeah. <laughs> there's just, it's just, and but I love scrums. And that's the thing. I don't want to get rid of them. I don't want to get rid of line outs. I don't want to get rid of rucks or malls. Mm. I just, I don't know how you, there was a point in time I felt like from 91 to 03 when rugby had landed in an area where as a sport and as a product, it was entertaining, it was brutal, it was balletic, it was artistic, it had a bit of everything. Mm. You know what I mean? And I don't know if we've lost the campos. Like I just remember I've been watching rugby these last few years, and I was like, who could do what Campisi did now? Who has the artistry with his ball, with the ball in his hand, 
to size up the opposition, to be able to make decisions. And I know a lot of the All Blacks do, like Bowden mm. Barrett's, uh, you know, a great footballer. And, you know, and we've seen heaps, like I understand we have seen, but there was just something about that, about the way that Campo froze everybody else. Yeah. Uh, you know, like maybe they're once in a generation people. Maybe they are the Maradonas or the Messies or the, the, the whatevers, you know. I think there are a few. I mean, look, Ch- Cheslin Colby comes to mind, the South African winger, because he he is a small, diminutive little guy with a lot of pace. But actually, he's just he's a, he, he's really good at just reading defenders and and moving and finding space. Um, and again, I'm trying to look at more outside of Australia, but I think of the you know guys like Finn Russell, who everyone has a massive crush on him. I think in the Northern Hemisphere because he just seems to not give a shit. <laughs> And he plays what's in front of him and he does things and he puts it on the foot at odd times and he and he tries to mix it up. Um, he probably won't be the Lions fly half because the Lions will want a solid, no-nonsense guy who can kind of, you know, stay up with the ship. But it, it, you're right, it is it is sort of those... The only thing that I can think of is in, from 2003 onwards is that defences have just gotten a lot harder in, in, in rugby union. And I think certainly the, the Wallabies that won in golden era had... had gotten guys like John Muggleton from rugby league to come on and, um, and, and recalibrate their defensive structure. So, so the game, the game has tightened up in, in the sense that you can get a lot more collisions and less open. Free yeah, but as a rugby. coach, as a coach, like you, you should be able to use the defense against the defense. Mm. Like that's the thing about a coach is like, if they want to crunch up and they want to jam you and they want to smash you and they want to do all those kind of things, like, like give them that the first five times mm. and then the sixth time, like throw them, you know, like a, a, a red herring, like confuse them. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. you've got to get them on the back foot in that situation. And, and, and it's easy. I, I understand that it's easier said than done, but I feel like if you look at the way the game is going yeah, and you acquiesce to the game, then you're just going to end up boring and pointless. And I think that's kind of where we're at. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, I think the thing about rugby league that is interesting is that no one's ever on top for that long. And I know the storm have always been mm. at the precipice. But the thing is the storm, when they're not first, they think they're last. Yeah. So they reinvent and then everyone has to chase them again. Mm. They don't let themselves get to sixteenth. Like it's it's it. There's a and it's a simpler game, but because this is a like what is league and what is union thing, there is a simplicity to to league that in this day and age where people are really really keen for just like fast entertainment or give me that now like the TikTok Twitter Instagram yeah. generation. Rugby league is a soundbite. It's mm. union is a chess game, and unfortunately, people don't want to watch chess anymore. They want to watch. They don't have the patience. Yeah, no, and yeah. that makes sense. And I think that's look, and I think that's what Rugby Australia, I think, are trying to address that with trying to do new rules. Um, when when Twiggy Forest, if his rapid rugby competition that they've created or tried to the create, twenty two is good. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Rapid Rugby, which, again, hasn't really happened, but their whole thing was they wanted to give nine-point tries. So if you score an end-to-end try, it's nine points. Um, like, they, you know, just mixing things up. And I think whether or not this will actually translate above to the international level, I don't know. But it's it, it, it certainly, I think, globally, and I, I'm, I'm hearing that in the UK here, people are, even though rugby is popular here, people are still complaining about the game not flowing and not making it easier for audiences to and spectators to to just you know lock into and i guess it's been like i guess it's been a um a victim of the like player safety kind of protocols and stuff mm. like that you know like the old you know touch pause engage i remember when they came in to keep us safe that's like before that dramatically but no no but but no no i'm talking about touch like crouch touch pause engage yeah that was that was the one that came in before what we've currently got, and the one that came in before that was just crouch, pause, engage. We didn't even have to touch. We didn't. It didn't matter yeah. how far away we were. And then before that, it was just pack the fucking scrum. Like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was. So now we're at like what is it? Touch, bind, set, and yes. by the time they set, their heads are like they're basically set. All they're doing is putting a light weight on each other. Look, I, I, I sit there now, certainly with Super Rugby games, and I'll, I'll look at my, my watch the minute a, a scrum is could have called. And it's pretty it, – honestly, it, very reg, it regularly goes up to about two minutes of, of scrum resets and waiting. And, 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 you know, obviously you don't want them to, um, you know, compromise on safety. But I think – it just people need to look at this and go, this is having a wider effect of this is why rugby gets down to under 40 minutes ball in motion. Um, and that, that, that can't continue. They have to figure out a way to do that. Certainly in Australia. And the frust, the frustrating point about that mm. is that when I was coaching footy uh, and I, obviously I had a, a really good backs coach with me because I was a forward. Um, we had a try scoring move off a scrum mm. that we reckoned we could score from 70 out. So we would see a scrum anywhere on the field as a try scoring opportunity. Yeah. And we would go hell for leather at that on first phase because we thought that was our best chance because we backed our outside backs. We backed our skill guys. We backed our ability to get the ball to where we needed it to mm. with the most space on the field. Mm. I haven't seen that, certainly from the Tars, but I haven't seen that in Super Rugby for ages. Like, yeah. Why not have a crack from 50? If you get a center field scrum on the 50, you should be trying to score a try off that. That's well, my point of view. That's I, I, my I, point of view as an attacking kind of rugby-style coach, and that would make the game more interesting. The, thing, the thing is that is high risk now. I had, I look. You look so at that what? game. You, you, but well, the thing is, you look at that game back last year when Super Rugby uh, Altera wrapped up, and they had a North versus South game. It was like a Barbarians match. It was just a try fest, and it was brilliant. And it was, you know, there was mistakes, but then there was a lot of you know exciting things. But you know, it was then pointed out to me by someone. They said, "Yeah, but it, it's a meaningless game. Like the coaches and the players, if they screw up or they lose that game, it means nothing." So the coaches could sort of say, well, go and do something. It was like the French Barbarians versus Barbarians match. No one really cared on the outcome. They just wanted to see good running rugby. That context just doesn't apply to the Super Rugby 
AU because I mean, look at Penny. He had to basically win. If he didn't win, he's out of a job. And I think other coaches but are probably no, no, but, but that's but he didn't try to win. That's what I'm saying. Mm. I'm saying like he was on a hiding to nothing. Throw yeah. it all in. Try it like do an eight nine fifteen from fifty out. Why wouldn't mm. you? Mm. Like why wouldn't you? Because they're your three best players. Well, I suppose he thought that he was trying to develop something. He had the the the, the board's support to develop, and so he was looking to try and develop moves. But no, you're right. It's 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 one of those things where you know I get excited about sort of a you know certain matchups when you know that the outcome's going to be run flowing rugby. You can almost sort of guarantee if certainly in the northern hemisphere, if it's it's if it's if it's you know probably usually if it's Wales playing uh, England it's going to be a dire game because neither team wants to screw up. Both teams will play safe. They'll, they'll rely on their defense. They'll play 10 man rugby, you know, and, and, you know, there could be a 16, nine win and that'll be a great game for people that watching that. And if you like rugby, it might be a good game, but for an average punter who knows nothing about the sport, but is interested in, Oh, England versus Wales, two countries that have a famous rivalry. You know, if you don't capture them that first time round, you're right. It's in this day and age, they'll just move on to something else. And unfortunately, in Australia, that's that seems to be what's happened with mm. fans that were willing to watch both. Yeah, is that they're now saying, you know what? I'd almost rather watch the New Zealand Warriors play the Gold Coast Titans at yeah. five thirty on a Saturday Arvo, because it's probably going to be thirty to twenty four. I'll see a whole bunch of tries. I'll understand the game. There won't be some weird, like, esoteric rules that I don't quite get. There won't be the ball out of play for minutes and minutes and minutes at a time, restarts of scrums, because, like, it, they're moving away mm. from it. And the ones that are sticking tight are the tragics and are the ones that still play the game. And I've mm. always said this, is that, one of the problems with rugby union is that you don't support a team because you play for a team because all the union fans are players. When yeah. we were colleagues, we weren't East fans or Randwick fans, were we? We mm. were barely Waratahs fans. We were Wallabies fans, certainly. But we spent all our Saturdays, like until six o'clock, watching our first grade play in Subbies rugby. Yeah. The participants are fans of the club they play for. And it's hard because you don't – in rugby league, that's not the case because the game is on all weekend. It's mm. on from Thursday to Monday – or Sunday now, but it used to be on until Monday. And in, league, in Union, it was like we've got one team to watch. It's either the Tars or the Wallabies. They're probably on and, – and honestly, when we came through playing Union – if there was a, a test match on that weekend, club rugby did not play. Yeah. It was a bye. So we could all go to the game. Yeah. They still do that in and the UK. It's, it's they, in England, if the England are playing at Twickenham, it's uh, it's usually a, a, an amateur club rugby bye because they just obviously, you know, and, and, and everyone does. Everyone does watch watch the game. If they can't get tickets, and, um, they'll, they'll go to a pub. that's the thing. That's the thing, right? I'm just going to – I'm just going to – Give you this anecdote. I'm not going to name the player or anything yep. like that. But I was working at the Waratahs this weekend and a guy came in uh, that also works in the um, the game day presentation situation. And um, he was telling me that he's mates with an ex-Wallaby that 
has been involved. And, uh, and he went down to a training session to try and, you know, like mentor the young kids. Mm. And he watched a few backline moves and, you know, you know, they got them wrong and, you know, people went unders and they should have got overs or, you know, like W1 and they ran a W2 or all that kind of like rugby palaver. And this ex-Wallaby kind of turned to the coach and said, oh, are you going to, you know, you're going to get on them for that? And he was like, no, they're young, you know, mate. They've got to, you know, they don't need that. And he was like, mate, if I dropped a footy under Rob McQueen, I did 50 push-ups. Mm. If I did it again, I did another 50. If I dropped it a third time, the rest of the team did 50. You don't drop it the third time. Mm. And it was just this thing that I was like, of course, that there needs to be people saying, sorry, I know You've been told since you were 15 that you're a good footballer. But now the gloves are off, kid. Mm. Catch the fucking footy. Catch it at training. Catch it in the drills. Catch it all the time. Make yourself accountable. Yeah. Listening to that story, I just thought to myself, well, that's kind of like the encapsulation of what I'm watching. And I, it's not true with the Reds, clearly, or the Brumbies, like clearly, but but it for me. That was also about how I kind of viewed the way that Rugby Australia was like dealing with things. It was like, okay, that didn't work, cool. Or that didn't work, cool. Or that didn't work, cool. And I was like, okay, so nothing's worked. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. Like who's gonna who's gonna actually be made to make something work? And now we're in a situation where they, if they don't get it to work real quick, and whatever happened with this broadcast deal, you can't watch. You can't watch a super rugby game in a pub in Australia at the moment. Mm. Are you aware of that? Yeah, yeah. No, no, this there's that because appears to be something that I assumed that they would fix, but yeah, it's it's an ongoing and <laughs> probably not a not a great thing for them not to be able to have that exposure. So you walk into a pub and there used to be pubs that were rugby pubs. Mm. There used to be pubs that were AFL pubs, there used to be pubs that were league pubs. I'll tell you what, how many pubs there are that are rugby pubs? None now. Mm. Zero. And if you want to grow fans, and it's hard to get 80,000 people in this environment to Stadium Australia. Yeah. But, but if you can't get them to the pub either and they've got to pay to watch it on telly, uh, yeah. You know, rugby has probably struggled in recent years, not just sort of on the field, but off field in terms of the message and the way it sends it. And I think whether that's just Rugby Australia or, or the various franchises just dropping the ball. One of the other things I'm trying to prone it now is that rugby's got a lot of problems, global problems, in terms of there's the, the uncontrollables. Like we can't control the fact that players were going to get paid three times as much money overseas. Um, we can't control the fact that um, other countries are just improving. And, and you know, they're, they're, at the moment, they're, they're, they're if, if not as good as us, they're better. Um, but there's a lot of things we can control. Like we can control how to get a deal so that we get exposure in pubs. We can control how our schools align with our clubs or how our professional franchises recruit and retain. Um, we can control things like having standards whereby, you know, if you don't drop, if you don't make a pass and stuff, you, you're out, you don't get selected. And there's another person lining up. And I think that's part of the problem now is if the TARS, they couldn't afford to get rid of anyone because there was no one else. You know, they were literally having to sort of then start, you know, 
getting debutants playing at a super rugby level, which just isn't actually, it's not safe to be honest for, for some of those young kids um, to be playing and thrust into that position. Um, I, I think kind of that's for me, what I'd like to see moving forward is that rugby just try and control what it can control and not try to overly overreach. And, and certainly it doesn't, it can't, it cannot try to say, Oh, we're going to be as good as league. Cause you're just not, you can't compete with a hundred plus years in league and AFL of competitions with attached loyalties and tribalism. What rugby needs to do is get back to where it was, where it was this sort of second option where people could, you know, they'd follow, uh, you know, the, the West Tigers or, you know, the Roosters or Rabbitohs, but actually they would be interested in, in, in the Waratahs and they'd definitely watch a Wallabies match when it was on. That's where we kind of, I feel that's where we, have to aim for is to find is to go back to being that honorable second choice which still has a lot of benefits rugby needs to find a way to find someone like me that's played rugby since 1992 Mm. and has been involved in a club and coached and stuff they need to find a way to make me want to choose a rugby game first over a league game and that's kind of what it comes down to is that they're in this weird position where the dudes from like 35 to 40 odd mm. that have the kids that are coming through uh, that the disenfranchised ones of us the lost fans of Australian rugby as I like to call them yeah like the people that sat there while Totai scored that try at Stadium Australia mm. you, know, you know or flew to New Zealand to watch the Waratahs on Easter weekend because Matt Rogers lived next to somebody that we knew and, and he got us, t- you know what I mean? Like It's a very I, specific story. I wonder if everyone else has that story. <laughs> oh, dude, mate. Like I used to work yeah. with Matt Rogers' next door neighbour yeah. and she, uh, we got tickets to New Zealand through the Macquarie Bank intranet, like 250 bucks return for the Easter long yeah. weekend. Waratahs happened to be playing at North Harbour Stadium. Because this was like confluence of events. And I said to Wendy, I was like, hey, we're going to go and watch the game. Like it was like, you know, me, Sham, Manu, mm. like, you know, like all the colleagues boys. I flew to New Zealand to watch the Waratahs play at North Harbour Stadium mm. in like 2002 or 2003. I can't remember what year it was. Now I watch eight games of rugby league a weekend. Yeah. It's a problem, mm. you know, like how do you lose? And I said this to you when we were chatting, how do you lose me? Yeah. Like how, and, and I'm just one of me. There's, there's probably 50,000 of me floating mm. around. There are, there are, mate. And I'm, and I, you know, since making this podcast is not that I'm sort of the, the center of the, the rugby community, but I'm getting a lot of people messaging interested still asking questions and it's not people who are um bitching about the game actually they're, they're like you and me they're trying to scratch their head going what has happened and they there is this sense of people actually are looking within because they go they look at their own experience and go oh yeah you've made this documentary because you're sort of um you know dis- disgruntled about what's happened i feel the same way i've i used to watch it i used to tour I used to spend a lot of money going to World Cups or I, like yourself, I'd, I'd go on or I was a member and now I can barely 
sit myself on the couch to watch two games of rugby on a weekend um, because that interest level has just sort of waned. And um, and I, but 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 there's still that desire to be part of it. In 2005, uh, I think it was 2005. I did a play in Belfast, and I think the Aussies were playing France that year in France, mm. but I couldn't get to Marseille. But I went to Paris with my Wallabies jersey on that I was given for my 21st birthday that was a Wallabies that had number one and my surname on the back, Wood, mm. which was disgraceful, right? Because, like, Wallabies have never had their names on the back. Yeah. But I got given this. And so every Wallabies game I'd go to, people would go, like, oh, good on you, Wood. Like, like just yeah. give me the shits. I got on a fucking train from London to Paris to go to the Gaudet Bar or whatever it's called, that that Aussie bar in um, Montmartre in, in Paris, mm. to simply watch the Wallabies play France <laughs> in that environment because I couldn't get to Marseille. Yeah. Like, that's what it meant. It meant everything. Yeah. And now I do a rugby league podcast. It's a... Yeah. It's a conundrum, man. And it's like, it's something that I can't even fully articulate. But I still love the game and I love the game on the sub districts and I love the game on the amateur level mm. because it's wonderful and, you know, the people you meet and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I work in the game at the professional level and I still adore it. But there is also something about it just simply not having the cut through and the reach. Mm. that it used to, that is deeply, deeply saddening for me. Yeah. I want to round off um, and put something to you. And this has sort of come from the process in which I've been trying to do research and talking, more importantly, talking to people who have put, presented things to me. When, when rugby came of age in the 80s, 70s really, 70s and 80s, rugby league was still professional. AFL was still, well, about to become fully professional, but was still uh, a big threat. But certainly rugby league, I imagine there were a lot of players getting recruited as juniors who were, um, you know, Union was missing out on that talent. It's very well documented. People like Wally Lewis, King Wally, was part of that famous Australian schoolboys tour that toured with the Ellers. The team of 77, 78. And, um, but then, you know, went played um, league. Around about the same time, you've got... Uh, O'Connor, Ray- Michael O'Connor. Michael O'Connor, um, Brett Patworth, who were established Wallabies, who then um, played for the Wallabies and then left, sort of mid mid twenties. Um, Ray Price, another league legend, who played for the Wallabies, then left. Ricky Stewart was captain of the Australian Schoolboys uh, tour, came back, went to league, and and we never saw him again. The fast tracks of when we then got really good, and we recruited league players. For the first time in our history, Wendell Saylor, who we mentioned before, Lottie Takiri, one of my favourite players of all time, Andrew Walker. Um, oh, he uh, was the best. I think he was one of the best footballers at that given time in both cases. Anyway, oh that's, that's my personal opinion. But but my point is, is we actually somehow managed to be successful despite the threat, the ongoing constant that is rugby league. Yet now we've gone to a position where we can actually pay to keep players we can sort of stem that flow and in fact we then were poaching their players at the turn of the century and yet that's the point at which we started to get worse now i'm not saying that rugby let us recruiting rugby players league players was the cause of our demise but that to me just seems like a very odd dynamic when really things should have 
gotten better, but we still seem to have this same problem of not being able to retain talent or the right talent. Um, and then we pay a huge chunk of money for league players in their mid twenties who, you know, arguably may not be as worth, worth their weight. If, if, uh, you know, you could spread a Vunavala check between three or four development players. Okay. So I guess the thing is, right. Like when we did that, when union did that, we're at the height of our, our game. And we grabbed dudes that had cut through. You know what I mean? Like they had, they had like advertising and they had marketing cut through. You know, Takiri, Sailor, you know, like Walker, all those kind of guys. But we also grabbed the only positional players that can translate. Yes. Rugby league. Rugby league's not about wingers anymore. It's not about fullbacks. England tried to do it. They tried to get Burgess. It was an unmitigated disaster. Mm. The, the All Blacks went and got Sonny Bill. He was fine. But compared to Sonny Bill as a league player or a boxer, he was mediocre, really. I think, I think it's argu- you could easily say that the All Blacks would have had he, – he didn't make – he didn't make them worse, but he didn't really make them any better. I think he, he, sure. he, he fit in and good on him because he was able to make become an All Black. But he he wasn't the difference. No, no, exactly, and that's what I mean. Like, and I think there's a part there's a part in it there where you're like, well, why did we try? Like, why wasn't Horan, Little, Campisi, Liner? Why weren't they good enough? Why weren't Larkham, Latham? Um, you know, Joe Roth, why weren't they enough? Because in my head, they're enough. Mm. Like the 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 indelible image of my childhood is Gregan's tackle on Wilson. Yeah. Like but- more so than well, it's it's kind of that and Michael O'Connor's conversion in origin from the sideline. Do you know what I mean? Like it's mm. but they're not that disparate. So I, I never quite understood why we decided that we needed Lottie or we needed Wendell enough. They were really serviceable and wonderful warriors of the game, sure. But for me, it was about Eels, mm. a guy that could not exist on a rugby league field. Like, what an absolute weapon. Yeah. Daly, McKenzie, and Kearns. Like, those three guys walking down the street when they were playing for the Wallabies would have looked like three guys like on their way to Weight Watchers. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. they were just... but. They were iconic, you know, Finnegan. Like, how does that, how is that man an athletic juggernaut? But he scored mm. one of the greatest tries we've ever seen. And then we went and said, oh, no, let's just get the two Bloomer boys from rugby league. Mm. And, and I don't know if you, you try to articulate it, but I don't know if part of it was like, well, don't compete with them, just actually be different. Mm. Rugby union is actually a game, and this is why it succeeds so much so well on a social level is because you can be 40 kilos overweight and still trot around and have a crack you know what i mean but there are body types these days a league center and a league front row probably about 10 kilos difference yeah like they kind of all have the same body type but I, I never got it. Wendell was Wendell and Lottie were great. Like they were really mm. good. I actually thought Lottie was a really, really good footballer. But you know what I mean? Like, really, if they really wanted to go for it, then 
Brad Fittler could have been the best number 12 in the history of rugby union. You've heard that story and I'll, I'll, I'll tell it. This is not my story. So if I've screwed it up, but um, a friend of a friend is very, very uh, chummy with some league players. And um, his friend went to the Bermuda tens that Fittler and John's played in many years ago. Gee, this might even be slug story. This was told to me by our mutual friend, Mr. Mr. Rush. Um, but anyway, the long story short is that Fittler and um, John's are playing as part of this union tens classic ten, the classic wallabies go and they play and they decided to invite two league legends along. And in the first game, I think Fittler scored a try. John's was okay. Um, but, Apparently Fittler just was outstanding. Like his, you know, he'd only a few years retired. So he was, he still got it. I'm sure today. And at one of the post game functions, a famous Springbok, whose name I don't know, has just come up to him and shook in his hand and said, mate, that was some of the best rugby I've ever seen. Who the hell are you? (laughs) And he just had no, this, this was a, this was a guy from the spring, the the classic Springboks equivalent of classic. Sorry, could you, could you redo that in a South African accent for me, please? Diplomatic immunity. Who are you? (laughs) That was outstanding. Who are you? That is outstanding. (laughs) Who are you? Who are you? Who actually are you? And it was basically (laughs) this sort of, it, it just summed it up that one of the greatest footballers in Australia who has just gone to this sort of tournament post career at some sort of, you know, classics thing has just dazzled a Springbok who said, mate, who, who are you? And I think that sort of sums up. I mean, Andrew Johns was probably at the height of his career, probably the best, you know, ball player in both codes. I think it's fair to say at certain points. Um, and, and I think that is, the, I mean, it's one of those things I explain to people when I live over, you know, living overseas, as I say, you know, you, you guys you look at the Wallaby team and I said that, that is not all the talent we have in terms of footballers. You know, you just watch some league games and you'll see some incredible footballers. And I asked a question the other day on one of my episodes was, you know, if you could choose from both codes right now, how many guys in the Wallabies would actually be in the Wallabies right now? If you had access to both codes for, for a matchup, um, obviously there are positional changes, positional players that, you know, you, you know, in, as you said, in league wouldn't translate over. But by and large, my God, how, how much, how many of the Wallabies, current Wallabies, would actually be in that starting 15? But also, like, as, as a rugby fan, who are the current Wallabies? Like, mm. what are the rules? Can the guys from Japan come back and play? Like, you know, from the guys from Europe come back and play? Like, who's available? Like, are we just talking super? Like, and that's, I think that's the thing. It's, it's, we don't, we don't know because rugby, Ultimately, it's an international game, mm. and rugby exists in a very okay. I'm in a I'm in a punters club at the moment, where we you know like you know you'll chip in ten bucks a week or whatever, and there's there's ten teams, and you know whoever's up gets to put on a couple of bets for the weekend, and uh, and there are rugby tragics in Australia betting on the Six Nations, mm. and I was like, is that on? You know what I mean? Like I didn't even, but no one's betting on the Super Rugby. I promise you that. Mm. And that's a weird thing because rugby never, actually never stops. It's always going. It's just that the heartland of it and the elite talent of it are no longer in Australia on a weekly basis. Yeah. And so it's hard to access it. And I would, I would think that, the days of the Tri-Nations where 
it mattered every single second mattered and mm. you know what i mean we'd all wait up until 3am to watch a game at loftus fairsfield or whatever like it's it's long gone and i don't know how they get that back yeah, and look, it is depressing when you when talking to you like this, <laughs> talking to other people <laughs> I have. But but I'm I'm remaining hopeful. And the things that I'm positive about is that a is we're having these discussions. Is that rugby Australia? I know you know, and you know as because oh, none of us outsider, want to No, but I think you know as an insider, there are people who are aware of this problem. I think the question is, what's the solution, and 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 it, what's in what's within our control? What what can't we control? Or is it just this, it's almost like a NASA problem. We've got all these pieces, but somehow we need to create a rocket out of what we've got. And yeah, it's get, not perfect. Get Apollo 13, get Apollo 13 home with a plastic bag. Yeah, it's exactly that. <laughs> exactly that. So, look, we've probably gone way over time. I think we, we've talked about rugby league and union. Maybe we need to do this again, mate. Um, obviously, it was focused on the Waratahs. So if anyone's um, grizzly at me for focusing on the Waratahs, um, apologies. But uh, read the news. It is the story of the week. We, um, have one, we have one point on the table. We have a single bonus point yeah. after five games. Mm. The Reds and the Brumbies, I think, are on 24 and 23. It's... Oh, it's dour viewing. Yeah. And it's hard. And you you said this before. It's a really important heartland of rugby. And it's a really important business like segment of rugby mm. that Sydney and New South Wales are rugby focused and very difficult to do it when you I mean and like and the force, God bless them. I love watching the force. They've just cobbled together this team of people from all over the world. It's delightful. They play enterprising rugby. They're throwing their hand at everything, I guess because they've been given a second life, really, that they've yeah. just gone, well, we're just going to go for it. Mate, what's, how's, how's, your, how's your bets looking in league? Are you guys are you punting? Is it, is it, is it on the up? Are you, uh, are you, are you landing them? Oh, that's a dog. No, it's it's a it's a cat. It's a cat, catastrophic. It's a first dog, few rounds are always a bit a bit bit unusual. Oh, though. mate, just do not bet during the first few rounds. The only thing you can bet on during the first few rounds, like, is if if you were a astute punter, you would listen to what we say and bet against it. <laughs> that's the only way to live. Well, look, we're the George Costanza of punters. <laughs> Serenity now. Serenity now. Uh, if anyone wants to um, go flip over to listen to Woody and Slugs, his counterpart, um, talk league and talk punting, um, it is a good listen. It's 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 obviously it's full of rugby league um, and punting info, but there's a, there's also some good gags and some good one-liners. And um, uh, the, the the journey of the film is still to come out, but I'd love to have you on again and talk more because we could probably talk all day about some of this stuff. Yeah, let's let's um let's see what happens at the end of uh, Super Rugby AU, and then um. And then maybe we'll talk once uh, uh, the Wallaby start up. Beautiful, mate. All right. We have a good day, Woody. And, uh, mate, we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Love you, Matty. Good to see you, mate. Bye. See you, bro. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film, Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host, Matt Durrant. And sponsored by whoever wants to reach out and pay me to have their name up in lights. Music is by Makeup and Vanity Set, sourced from musicbed.com. 
Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby. Follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.